and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate change by young people, for all people. Today in my shout-out portion of the episode, I'd like to shout-out Lucy A. Jang for her cake Instagram. Go give it a follow. Yeah! <laughs> Thanks, Evan. Now let me properly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Evan, and joining me today, as always, are my two lovely co-hosts, Kelly and Steven. Now, Kelly and Steven... Unless you were alive in 1918, I'm guessing we're all in the same boat here that we're all kind of living in unprecedented times. So tell me, what is it like living in these unprecedented times? So I think at this point, I've been working from home somewhere between two and three months. I've kind of lost track of time. Time is meaningless. It's a social construct. We had an all-hands meeting earlier this week where they said it was March 74th. Um, which accurately describes how I feel about the situation. But I think at first it was a little bit weird to be stuck at home, but I think over time we've kind of gotten used to it. And I think ultimately we've been learning to adapt, but um, now one of the big concerns is once we exit sheltering at home, how are are we going to know how to interact with people again in real life since we've been used to looking at people through boxes on Zoom? Steven, how do you think your social skills are doing? I am really looking forward to being social again, to be honest with you. I, I'm so, I'm getting tired of all the Zooms. I like Zoom, but it's also like a little bit like you got to be on for the Zoom and you're kind of like, it gets tiring where it's just like hanging out with people is like very uh, low energy at times. And yeah, I'm getting used to, you know, working from home as well. Um, but I'm, I'm missing like my site visits, like going out to site and like seeing a project start to be built and doing some diligence. Like I just like being outdoors, which I feel like I haven't been doing enough of, so Definitely looking forward to all of this um, being in the rearview mirror um, at some time in the future. Well, speaking of unprecedented times, the New York Times, LA Times, it's the biggest story in the world. And it's a science story. And it's every story. Every story is a coronavirus story. And that can be a little overwhelming. But it's crucial that we understand the gravity of this pandemic and the scope of its influence. Politically, it's super important that it's an election year. And why that's important is what type of stimulus we're going to see. Are we going to see a Trump-based stimulus or are we going to see a Biden-based stimulus? We've seen uh, Governor Inslee come out with a $1.5 trillion plan that we're going to be talking about later. Economically, we're probably heading towards a recession. Our first quarter U.S. GDP was down 4.8%. And this is exacerbating a major problem in this country, which is economic inequality. Low-income workers are struggling to decide whether to risk their lives to support their families or to stay inside and risk losing that crucial income. Socially, for the short term, we know what quarantine is doing to us. Uh, It's definitely changed the way we socialize, uh, but the long-term effects can only be speculative. However, the long-term effects this pandemic will have environmentally are not merely speculative. And bring us to our topic today, how has COVID-19 affected climate change? And what do the two maybe have in common? So one thing that's really interesting is to think about the parallels between coronavirus and the climate crisis. One thing that we've all become very familiar with in the context of the coronavirus is flattening the curve, essentially the idea that if you take action earlier, you don't need as drastic measures to be taken. And the final effect of the pandemic will be less, lower, uh, fewer deaths, fewer people getting sick, etc., The climate is very similar. So there's this article in Grist called We Need to Flatten the Climate Curve. Essentially, um, with the climate, if we take an action back in 1970, we would only need a 2% 
reduction in emissions every year to stay within 1.5 degrees. Because we've lost about four decades of time, um, now we need 7.5% emissions reductions per year over the next 10 years to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And as we said in the last episode, this level of emissions reduction is truly unprecedented. The amount of emissions reductions we're getting with the coronavirus is less than this, and it's coming at significant cost and personal pain to pretty much everyone. Similarly with the coronavirus, if we had taken drastic action early, like in January when the first cases started showing up in the U.S., we could have just done some contact tracing and testing and successfully suppressed um, the virus in the whole country. Instead, now we're at 90,000 deaths. We've been locked down for two months, but we still don't have it under control. And now the question of the economy versus people's lives is a very real question. And I think there's very valid reasons for being on either side. But ultimately, it should have been, we should have just taken action earlier to reduce the suffering and level of shock and change needed for everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. And with with what Kelly was saying, and on top of that, it's one of the things that strikes me as huge similarities here is that this is at the end of the day a science thing, right? It's like a virus that there are scientists and experts that understand these things. And our, our leaders, at least in the United States, continuously disregard the science, disregard the experts, and act out of their own um, political agendas, which is, I think, very frustrating because there are just... You know, we should be in, in, in a type of society where we trust the institutions that we've built. And we trust experts who are talking out of fact and not out of opinion. Um, and, and then once again, this um, coronavirus is very similar to climate change in that we're all in this together. You know, you as an individual may think, oh, I'm okay if I expose myself and I'll get sick. That's fine. But it's not, you can't think of coronavirus as an individual issue. It's really a collective thing. We're, we're all in this together and we need to all work together to change all of our collective behavior as a global community. Yeah, and another interesting thing is that um, coronavirus doesn't discriminate when it comes to infecting people, but then when it comes to seeking treatment, if you're wealthy and can afford to go to a good hospital that might not be as crowded versus if you are poor, you lost your job and don't have health insurance anymore, you will be further impacted when it comes to treatment. Similarly, in climate change, everyone will reap the effects, but poor farmers in Bangladesh who are getting flooded out of their homes are going to have much less resources to deal with it than, for instance, rich people who have a bunker in New Zealand. So ultimately, these crises, they might technically be equalizers because they affect everyone, but ultimately what we've seen is that they tend to exacerbate the underlying inequalities that are present in our society. Yeah, um, I really like that thing you said there, Kelly, about... Um you know, it's, gonna, it's affecting all of us. And one thing I think about all the time with climate change, similar to with coronavirus, is that it doesn't matter if you're red or if you're blue. If you get coronavirus, you get coronavirus, right? It doesn't. Same thing with climate change. It doesn't matter if you're red or you're blue. If you're in the Midwest and and does you get unprecedented flooding like we got last year, it doesn't matter if you're red or blue. If you're if you're living in the California coastline or in the Florida Panhandle, it doesn't matter if you're red or blue. Those wildfires are still going to affect you, destroy your crops, destroy your property. You know, cost you millions of dollars. I'm not sure the, entire, the exact um, price there. Um, it doesn't matter you know, wh- whether you're on this side or that side of the political aisle. It's going to affect your livelihood and potentially end your life as well. So earlier, Kelly, you were talking about the procrastination of our country with dealing with climate change and the, the similarities between the COVID curve and the climate change curve. And when we talk about these numbers, like a 7.5% emission reduction, and limiting our global temperature increase to two degrees. I feel like that's kind of an abstract concept to a lot of people. I mean, even COVID 
is abstract to a lot of people because we're not seeing it. But we still we're seeing the numbers, but people still don't understand the danger. So how do we get people to understand the danger of climate change, which is an even more abstract thing to wrap your head around? Well, I think going back to what Stephen was saying, the amount of extreme weather that's happening now, people are realizing that this is a problem. Even people who don't like the words climate change, if you say the increase in extreme weather events and things like that, increased flooding, people will listen because they can see this happening with their own eyes. I think because the words climate change has become so politicized, you just have to kind of tiptoe around it, say everything, they, and say what we need to do is, for instance, install more renewable energy, um, transition to these better technologies that are cleaner. I also think that acting out of fear is ultimately unsustainable because it results in conspiracy theories and paranoia and generally just feeling attacked. Like you feel like this climate threat is a personal attack. And even if that triggers you to action, ultimately, like the long-term impact on your psyche is rather unhealthy. The interesting thing about climate change is that green jobs can actually be a very productive and positive message for the future. So we need to be talking about this, providing a vision of a better future that we can achieve with clean energy, livable communities, green jobs. And I think um, more and more conservatives are also coming on board with the idea of using markets and clean technology to do so. Yeah, I think I um, agree with everything Kelly said. And, and you know, uh, further on that point of like, how do we get people to care about these issues? I think um, there's two, two ways that I would kind of think about it is, first of all, instead of framing it as climate change, which is this, you know, long in the future, um, a horizon, you know, decades long problem that we're going to face, you could bring it to the immediate with people. I think human beings in general only care about what's right over the horizon, like what's what's next year going to look like. Um, so you can just talk about pollution. You, you, that's a very depoliticized thing. You know, like there's a lot of pollution that's affecting us um, in our day-to-day, and, that, and that's something that's killing Americans right now. Um, increased asthma, increased um, water pollution, um, such as in communities like Flint. But besides talking about pollution, I also think it's, you know, to Kelly's point here, talk, talking about the economy is always, is always a good talking point here in America. So talking about green jobs, talking about technology, investment, um, and, you know, speaking about the economy, like if we, if we talk about right now, 2020, what are we experiencing, right? Um, we are on, in unprecedented levels of economic duress. We haven't seen these kinds of unemployment numbers since about 100 years ago in the Great Depression. Um, as of now, the number is about 30 million Americans who have filed for unemployment. And, you know, another crazy thing about that is that there's also a, a lot of those workers that are getting unemployment benefits are getting paid more under unemployment than they were getting paid when they were working, which is ridiculous. You know, think about that. You're, what kind of incentives are you creating for people where it's like, uh, you know, you might as well just file for unemployment. And that, that's a very nuanced topic, of course, and, and I don't want to paint with broad brushstrokes there, but, you know, that's just an interesting um, incentive that we've created. Um, so one thing that Evan mentioned at the top of the show as well is that we are very likely heading into a recession. So about uh, six, uh, six to eight months ago, the, the bond yield curve in the United States inverted, which um, you know, I won't go into all the details of that, even though I'd love to get into the economic intricacies of the bond yield curves. But essentially what it means is that the government is predicting more economic hardship in the near term than the far term. And you know, historically, this, the bond yield curve has inverted for every recession since the 1950s. And it predicts that a recession will happen anywhere between six months and two years from then. That a recession will hit. So here we are, you know, just a couple months later, COVID has hit, which is, you know, definitely a black swan that no one actually anticipated. But sure enough, the economy is in shambles. 
Now, now one thing to, to, to really stress here is that the stock market is not the same thing as the economy. And I'm sure a lot of people will go, oh, yeah, that's obvious. You know, the economy is in shambles. 30 million people um, have, have applied for unemployment. And meanwhile, the stock market is performing at its best. Like it's, it's shattering records, having, having record-breaking uh, days, which is really, um, it would be really funny if it weren't so sick and twisted, huh? So, you know, looking forward into what our recovery will look like, people, a lot of economists talk about, will it be a V-shaped, um, V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped re- recovery? So V-shaped, you know, it's very, very similar to the, to the letter V, you know, hard shift down and then a hard recovery straight back up. Or a U-shape, in, a lot, in some cases even a, an L-shaped recovery, it, where the economy goes down and then it stays down for a long time before eventually slowly building back up. And those are a lot harder, a lot more difficult to go through, and that's that's what the Great Recession looked like. And so, speaking of the Great Recession, you know, how how did we how did we get out of the Great Recession? We we tried many things, we tried many different programs, and eventually the only thing that really got us out was World War II. So what it kind of points to is that. To get out of a very long U-shaped or maybe L-shaped um, recession, which I predict is what's going on right now, we need to spend, spend, spend. Yeah, it's really interesting. So uh, you might say taking the L is the worst form of coronavirus recovery, right? hey Kelly, hey, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get some air horns in there, please? <laughs> but um, it's really interesting as well that I don't know if you guys know Ray Dalio. He's um, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the most successful hedge funds. He's been saying that he's been writing a lot about the history of debt recently and posting it on LinkedIn. Um, And so basically they said in in World War II, the reason why we had so much prosperity after that is that World War II destroyed a lot of wealth because it's a war. And so ultimately, when you destroy all this wealth, that makes the foundation for having a new um, system where perhaps the spoils of capitalism could be distributed more evenly. And what we're seeing now is with printing money, there's going to be a lot of inflation. The value of money is going to go down because they're creating more of it. Like if we print a lot of money, it will destroy wealth, but it will create the foundation for a more equitable society. And that's what happened after World War II. It wasn't just that we spent a lot of money. It's that the pre-existing, the people who are very wealthy before that no longer were like so much more extravagantly wealthy than everyone else. And so it'll be interesting to see if that's what happens as a result of this pandemic or if we just double down on being unequal. Well, in a seamless transition from depression and war, I think it's time for my favorite segment. It's Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. It's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know that Hump Day was originally named after the humpback whale, which has been silently stewing in anger ever since the camel was cast by Geico in 2009? Happy Hump Day, everyone! That was Evan's climate fact of the day! (laughs) So, unlike the crotchety old humpback whale who's stewing in the past, in our next segment, we're going to be looking into the future. Stephen, are there coronavirus stimulus plans that are out there that include clean energy? And what would they be? Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I, just, as I was just mentioning about the Keynesian economics, which is essentially a stimulus plan of, of spend, spend, spend. Um, the motto that, that, that Maynard Keynes, John Maynard Keynes had was, in the long run, you're all dead. That was pretty much his philosophy on people who would say, what about the debt? What about the deficit? And I, I know it's, it's, uh, 
it's a very interesting um, conversation that we could have for, for hours and hours about whether to spend and increase the national deficit or not. Um, but the thing is, pretty much every major country in the entire world does this anyways. So it's kind of, um, I would say it's kind of useless to debate and talk about whether or not we should because we're going to. So we're going to spend massively to get out of this recession, and we already have passed several trillion dollar um, plans so far. So what, what should the rest of those stimulus plans look like? So what we should talk about is getting ourselves invested into a sustainable and green economy and essentially building infrastructure. Um, at the end of the day, we need to build physical assets that actually exist. It's not, I'm not saying like build more tech or, build, or have more code that increases efficiency of things, but I'm saying actually make some investments in physical assets that are either already existing or need to be built. Um, so the, the, the $3 trillion bill that the House just passed this week doesn't, unfortunately, does not include any specific provisions for clean energy. So some, some easy ones would have been like an ITC extension for solar, which essentially gives solar energy projects a little bit of a tax break um, that ends up helping a lot with the economics, or, or perhaps adding um, storage and batteries to the ITC, to giving them that tax break as well. Maybe an EV, an EV tax credit in electric vehicles or fast charging infrastructure, um, there are so many options, and it pains me to, to see that none of them have passed, but unfortunately, it's not very surprising given our current administration and Senate structure. So, you know, what, what should we be prioritizing at, the, at our federal level? Um, you know, I mentioned build, 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 right? So there's so many different things that we can build. So what does that actually look like? Kelly, what, yeah. what do you think? Well, first of all, I think, um, so the $3 trillion coronavirus package that the House passed, it's still very much about relief. So it's like, how can we mitigate the economic pain that's being pushed onto households right now? But the thing is, the economy is going to take so long to recover. I think Andrew Yang estimated that about 42% of the jobs that were lost are never coming back. And we're going to be paying a lot of unemployment benefits so as a result, instead of paying everyone unemployment, maybe we could be paying them the same amount, but to actually build things that could be useful. And I think a lot of people, like in general, people don't like being unemployed. They like having things to do and putting people to work, building clean energy infrastructure is a much better use of everyone's money and time. In Europe, the European Parliament is now saying that the Green Deal needs to be central to coronavirus recovery. Companies with $11.5 trillion in market cap, such as um, Microsoft and Visa, are calling for the coronavirus stimulus to include clean energy. So this is something that a lot of people are pushing towards. I think our federal government is kind of behind on this, but there's many things that we could do. Mark Anderson, a VC from Silicon Valley, recently put out an article saying, build, build, build. America's forgotten how to build things, and we need to do that. In response, a lot of people are coming up with their own plans on what things we need to build. And so um, this uh, VC, Shale Khan, who works in clean energy, released a list of about 35 of those. Um, you can read them on his medium. And so it ranges from everything from building out a lot of renewables, transmission lines, to things like public transit, building out fake meat, planting a trillion trees, etc. So there's a whole list. Um, I think that what we need to prioritize at a federal level are those that can't be done at the state and local level because they require interstate um, right-of-ways or things like that. So things like hydrogen pipelines, you need that to be planned centrally. You have to figure out where you're going to put the hydrogen storage and then where the pipelines are going to go. Things like high-voltage transmission lines. They cross state lines. That's how, why you need the federal government to coordinate the states. It's very difficult for states to coordinate with each other without the federal government being there. Nationwide high-speed rail, especially because air travel is going to be so hard hit by this pandemic, 
but we still probably want to be able to travel, it's a good time to build out a nationwide high-speed rail network. We are so behind on this too. I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but comparing our rail system to that of literally any other advanced country is kind of embarrassing and shameful. Other things like building out um, renewable generation, energy efficiency, in particular retrofitting office buildings to be more energy efficient because there's not that many people in them right now. Um, they don't require as much central planning. It's very much like, okay, there's this one building, someone can go in there and fix it. I think that's something that we absolutely need to be doing, but it doesn't necessarily require coordination from the federal level. They should be putting money into it, but I think that's something where it makes sense to allocate money to the states to have them put towards those programs and kind of manage it themselves. When we're talking about these plans that call for building renewable infrastructure and like retrofitting office buildings, is there a labor base in the U.S. for that? Or is there like, do we need to like change the way our labor is currently fitted to suit that kind of work? Or is it already in place? Yeah, well, first of all, there's been a, like 600,000 job losses in clean energy within the last couple of months, which wipes out all the clean energy job gains from the last five years. So that's not great. And so a lot of these people were working in things like energy efficiency, going into people's homes, retrofitting them with insulation, um, weatherization, and things like that. And now that people probably don't want other people going into their homes, these workers are now out of a job. In terms of clean energy job training, I think that's definitely something that we need to be investing more in. So Stephen and I, um, when we were at Berkeley, we both volunteered with this organization called Grid Alternatives, which um, does job training for people who want to get into the solar field. I think in general, that's a field where they always need more workers because it's growing so quickly. And um, there's a lot of organizations working on the job training, but I'm not certain if there's um, programs for that at the federal level. And I think like training people to do good blue collar jobs and giving them the tools to do that is something that I think everyone, regardless of your political affiliation, can get behind. Stephen, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think those are great points. And and besides that, I mean, there's 30 million Americans who have filed for unemployment, you know, as of right now. And um, Andrew Yang said that something like 44% of those jobs will not come back. So let's say, let's just cut it in half just for, for easy math. Let's say 15 million Americans who are unemployed who will not have a job in the future. Well, we can give them a job. And they'll be good jobs. The thing is, they'll be good jobs. They'll be um, jobs that you can really feel good about and give yourself a sense of purpose in life. I think a lot of people need that like to Kelly's point like it's unemployment feels bad um so it's it's good to to be working on something and to feel like everyone that I talk to in my industry they love their jobs it's hard but if they feel good because they're they're mission based and they're they're principled and they're they're fighting for something good for the future so when we're talking about this revolution of renewable jobs it seems like you guys are advocating for the federal government to serve kind of as a catalyst for these jobs so what current policies are floating around in the federal government, and are any of them gaining any traction? I mean, if we're talking about the federal level right now, it's, it's pretty much the Trump administration, which the answer is no. <laughs> um, but, but we can really look about, think about what could happen at 2020 and beyond um, when potentially we could see an administration change. So there's definitely a lot of people planning, um, a lot of uh, people on, on the on the Joe Biden campaign are, are planning and, and coordinating a climate bill as well. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, he, um, he was the, one of, the, nomination, um, one of the, the candidates running for the Democratic um, presidential bid. And he, he ran a campaign entirely on climate change. 
his entire platform was pure climate change, which was very admirable, though he never stood a chance to actually win. He, he and his former staffers have released a $1.5 trillion climate plan, which is, seems like a lot, right? $1.5 trillion. But what I think is even funnier is that previous Democratic candidates, um, when, when, there were many, when there were over 20 of them on the stage at a time, they were saying things like, I think Bernie Sanders was saying, oh, I'm going to have a $16 trillion climate, climate bill. And people were saying that proudly, like, like I'm going to spend $16 trillion on climate. And I think that was so funny to me that, that, <laughs> that the people were saying how expensive their plan was going to be, when it should be saying the other way. You should be saying, this is how inexpensive it's going to be in the long run. I'm going to make these investments, but it's actually going to save us money. It's going to make our, our lives better instead of saying how much it's going to cost us and just kind of steering yourself back into that pigeonhole, like socialist, uh, you know, expensive, you know, those, those buzzwords that I'm not saying I, that whether or not those are good or bad, but you know that the Republicans are going to use um, against you. Yeah. I agree. And so um, another interesting thing, so Inslee's former staffers released this $1.5 trillion plan. Another organization called the American Climate, uh, American Conservation Coalition, which is a group of young Republicans, they actually released a policy document called the American Climate Contract. Basically, a plan to rebuild the economy, but um, with with a green perspective. And this is um, basically a more market-based climate solutions um, coronavirus stimulus bill. So there are conservatives out there that are like put actually proposing um, productive plans. I don't think they've necessarily filtered up to the highest levels of the federal government yet. But I think having these as some as a document that conservative lawmakers can refer to as something that's palatable to them, and then maybe coming together and deciding what are the things that we can put together. For instance, things like the investment tax credit, that is a market-based mechanism. You are giving people tax breaks for installing solar. There's nothing that's really more market-based than that. And also um, probably like deregulating energy markets so that unprofitable coal plants can no longer operate. That's a no-brainer. It's great to see that um, other young people um, are also very invested in this issue, especially on the conservative side, because we see our lawmakers who are boomers um, on the conservative side are not necessarily concerned with it, but the next generation seems to be taking it very seriously. So that's great to see. And now it's time for my second favorite segment. It's the Green New Spiel. Stephen, let's start with yours. Hey, okay. So my Green New Spiel this week is um, regarding um, the Joe Biden campaign. Um, so Joe Biden, um, I have a friend on the Hill here in D.C. that has told me that lately um, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Barack Obama have been in conversations um, for the past couple months about just strategy and things that they want to accomplish with their with their campaign and um among that among among those plans is to form a coalition um of to to really unite the democratic party which is which is um centrist uh, moderate democrats as well as um the further left um progressive movement so so essentially they're trying to create coalitions and different task forces for for de- key democratic issues such as healthcare, um jobs and labor and climate so, so my Green News spiel is about that climate task force. Um, I recently read an article just um, this last week that said that they're forming a new coalition that will be co-chaired by AOC and former um, Secretary of State John Kerry. So that that filled me with a lot of excitement right there. Um, I think AOC is a is a is lightning in a bottle, and John Kerry is that is that is wise and and storied, and he knows his way around um, government. So I'm really excited about this this team here. Um, I think that we can really accomplish something there. Um, so yeah, I, I that filled me with hope, and I hope it fills you with hope as well. 
All right, thank you, Stephen, for your Green News spiel. Now we're going to hear from Kelly. Cool. So my Green News spiel was originally supposed to be about the clean energy job losses, but we just talked about that. So I just found another one. Um, So there's a natural gas pipeline um, called the Williams Pipeline in New York. Um, The Cuomo administration just rejected their bid to build this pipeline for the third time. So they were planning on carrying fracked gas from Pennsylvania to the city of New York. um, And and, um, activists say that basically building this infrastructure is not in line with the city's um, greenhouse gas reduction targets. And so um, the pipeline was shut down or it was denied its permit for the third time based on concerns over water quality. So this is something that's actually been rather controversial because heating oil is um, typically used for a lot of um, for a lot of heating needs in New York, and that is one of the dirtiest fuels by far. Natural gas is a cleaner fuel. However, um, some of the activists say that we shouldn't use natural gas as a bridge fuel because it's a quote-unquote bridge to nowhere. If you build out this natural gas infrastructure, you reduce the emissions by half, but then to reduce it all the way, you still have to retrofit everything with heat pumps. Instead of building this natural gas pipeline that has to be there for 20 or 30 years to pay off the investment, instead you can just start investing in heat pumps right now. By the time, maybe you'll get halfway to, maybe you'll only retrofit half of them in the next 10 years, but then you're actually halfway to completely decarbonizing. And so um, it'll be interesting to see if this pops up again, but I think the movement to electrify everything and get rid of natural gas in new homes is really gaining steam. Um, I think it's something that um, large organizations like the Sierra Club are now taking up um, at the national level. A lot of cities have been banning natural gas in new construction, and I think um, decarbonizing buildings is going to be a next big frontier for um, the climate movement. Well, thank you, Kelly, for your green new spiel. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. So in the second half of our show, we were talking about where does the country go from here. But Stephen and Kelly, where are you guys going from here? What are your plans for the rest of the week? Um, so this weekend, I've been um, really fixing up my backyard. Um, yesterday, we like stained um, our furniture. Um, it's like the color is russet. It looks like a russet potato, I guess. Um, but it looks really good. Wait, it's, oh, like pink? <laughs> it's like a stain. It's like a wood stain. So it all looks, it looks like a mahogany. So we're going to oh, okay, finish okay. staining that and stain the sides of the table and like our bench. And um, yeah, just get, get, that, get that done. Beautify it for, for summertime. Kelly, any wood-based plans? No wood-based plans. So I was helping a bit more with the yard work yesterday. We have like a bunch of weeds in this one patch of our yard, like these huge grass things. So I pulled them out. We put some cardboard over it for sheet mulching. We're going to get some more bark and put it on top of it. Um, so just trying to keep it beautiful. Um, and I think we're going to probably buy raised bed, plant some vegetables and stuff like that as well. So that kind of stuff. And then next weekend is Memorial Day weekend. So I'm planning a little expedition, but we'll, we'll see how that goes because it's very like weather dependent, um, and, uh, still not entirely sure what exactly we're doing, but hopefully I'll have a good story to tell on the next podcast. Uh, you know, you never fail to symbolize the Washington outdoorsmanship. <laughs> <laughs> That's my identity. All right, well, all, all my outdoorsmanship has been in animal crossing. So, uh, maybe I should start <laughs> going outside in the real world. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you have a chance, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. That would be incredible. We really appreciate the reviews that we've already gotten. Thank you, Uncle Ed, <laughs> for your glowing review. And um, 
We'll see you next week. Have a good week, y'all. Thank you.